Good morning. <clears throat> so, we are continuing our study of the book of Thessalonians, the letter of Thessalonians, the one that uh, the both of the letters, we will get to, ch to the second letter eventually, but both letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians um, not too long after he had been in Thessalonica and established this church. It was on his second journey um, that he went through uh, Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea, then Athens, and he finds himself in Corinth. Um, and a few months later, after he had been in Thessalonica, he's worried about these people. He's worried because they were under great amount of persecution, uh, tribulation. Where was it coming from, as we're, just as a recall? Who was, who was causing the trouble for these believers in Thessalonica? The Jews. They, uh, uh, there was a synagogue in Thessalonica, unlike Philippi, so he went and he taught at the synagogue. How long was he there? Or how, long did, how many Sabbaths did he teach? That's a better way to ask that question. Three Sabbaths he taught. So he could have been there maybe as close as five weeks if he arrived on a day after Sabbath and started the following Sabbath and taught for three Sabbaths before he got run out of town, so to speak. But the Jews made great difficulty for him in Thessalonica, although there were many that were converted, uh, Greeks, women and men, and a few Jews. He goes on to Berea. Berea is described as a people who were more noble than the people in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures. They were genuinely interested in what Paul had to say compared to the truth they had available to them to check. Um, he went to a synagogue in Berea. Uh, so it was a similar type audience. And so what I gather from that generally is that the Jews were actually more receptive in Berea. Because the Gentiles in Berea were just like the Gentiles in Thessalonica. Many Gentiles were converted in Thessalonica and many Gentiles were converted in Berea. But who caught up with Paul in Berea? The Jews from Thessalonica. And started wreaking havoc on them, meaning that they stirred up the crowd in Berea, the, the, the crowd of Jews, I would say, in Berea, and made it very difficult for Paul in particular. And they felt like it was important for them to actually get him out of town with an escort that escorted him all the way to Athens. In the meantime, he's worried certainly about both these groups of people. Uh, but I do think that he understood in Berea, why would he have not, I'm just going to ask a hypothetical question, why do you think he might not have written a letter back to Berea as quickly as he wrote a letter back to Thessalonica? Who were the, where were the Jews from that were causing the problems in Berea? Thessalonica. So once Paul was gone and when he sent for, Tim, for Timothy and Silas from Athens and, and they left Berea, well then, I imagine, the Jews from Thessalonica went back to Thessalonica and left the Bereans alone. But you had a good support system there in Berea of Jews and Gentiles who were genuinely interested in finding about, about the truth and following the truth. However, those Jews went back to Thessalonica. So Paul knew what circumstance they were in. And so he writes this letter from Corinth very, very quick soon after he had gotten there 
worried about these brethren. We're going to find in the next chapter that Timothy has been there and given a really good report. So as we, um, as we move through this chapter, um, we got through last week. Um, I, I wanted to sh- go through these questions really quickly. These are the ones that we answered last week. Um, so last week, the question, the first question in, in last week's was about um, the, the topic of this section. So when we think about this section of uh, the letter, I asked the first questions, what do you believe Paul was trying to accomplish in these verses, in these first 12 verses? And I have up there the, um, the second half of those 12 sections, of those 12 verses. We talked about relationships, that Paul had come in and said basically that um, here's, here's how we were when we were with you. Here's what we taught when we were with you. Here's what we didn't do when we were with you. And so I, I highlighted some things that talked about the basis of his, his relationship. They were gentle. As a nursing mother would tenderly care for her own children. Um, as a father um, would his own children. So, and, and lastly, we had a fond affection for you. Uh, so these phrases or words that are in this section from 1 through 12 all highlight how Paul felt about the, the Thessalonians, where their hearts were coming from, um, and the way his uh, character, his personality was when he was with them. Um, oh, and we're delighted to share our own lives. Um, there's this phrase in between there in the middle. We're delighted to share the gospel with you, but not only the gospel with you, but even our own lives. Um, so this was how Paul um, had a relationship with them, the kind of relationship he, he had with them. We talked about last week how that Theodore Roosevelt said, was, or at least he's the one that's credited with saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And um, this is sort of what, the way I get what Paul is doing here. He's establishing or reestablishing for the, Thessalon- for the Thessalonians how he felt about them, how much he cared about them. The second question that I asked was, what are, what are these words error, impurity, and deceive have to do? When it says that um, in verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Um, error being what? False teaching. Creating your own doctrine. Yeah, creating your own doctrine. Um, I have not based, you know, it's, their, their, their teaching was not based on false doctrine. You could even go one further and say it was actually based on fact. So what's implied here when it's not based on false doctrine? It, that it, well, it's based on truth. But truth can also be things that are factual. Truth is God's truth, the spiritual truth, his biblical truth, the promises that he's made that are true, things that haven't happened yet that will be fulfilled, they're true. But there were things that Paul could have been talking about that had happened that were true. So these were not his, his, their appeal about the gospel, the good news from God, was not based on false doctrine or untrue facts. You weren't making this story up about this Jesus who came to earth as the Son of God and was the Messiah, the Christ, and died on a cross and was raised from the dead and was offering that to anyone who believed. All of that appeal was based on truth, on fact, not on false doctrine, not a made-up story. The other one was impurity. Remember what we said about impurity? Wayne? 
something you didn't underline just before that it was not as a burden to them that they work night and day yeah. so they wouldn't be sometimes the impurity is you're doing it for the wrong reason you're doing it for the money which yep. that would be impurity wouldn't it yep it would be so the opposite of impure pure when we think about things that are pure if it's pure gold it means there's no what inside that gold if it's, if it's, a, if it's a pure diamond there's nothing, what, false about that, true. I mean, there's no error in it, but there are no impurities in it. In, in my way of thinking here, it was not based on having an ulterior motive. And that's what he talks about in several of these things. It wasn't because he was for, it wasn't there, he went, they weren't there for money. They weren't there for some divided purpose. He goes on and says, we didn't do this for the praise of people. We didn't do this for the praise of anyone. So in this case, the impurity that's talked about here is that they were, their, their intent, his intent with the Thessalonians as well as everywhere he had been, was always about a single-minded objective. When we talk, when Jesus talks about it, man can't please or, 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 or revere or glorify God and mammon, you'll either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. You can't have divided intentions when you're serving God. You can't have your foot in both the world and, and, and spiritual life. And Paul's basically pointing out when we were teaching you, we were teaching you with a pure motive. We had one thing in mind. It was your souls. It was your relationship with God. It's, it's just really common in that. It's, it's softest to go around. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so, well, I'll go to the next one. The last one was deceit. Deceit, what, what would deceit, deceit be? I, I think of some of the, the ways that Paul described the, their efforts in Corinth when he wrote to the Corinthians after he'd left them and was in Ephesus. Um, yeah, it, perfect. They weren't trying to fool, he wasn't trying to fool them. They weren't trying to trick them into believing something that, first of all, wasn't true. If it was a false doctrine, if they had ulterior motives, if they were out for money or fame or the praise of men, then maybe there would be some trickery involved. You'd have, to, you'd have to fool people into believing what you were teaching them, Right? And so he says, it wasn't for any of these reasons that we were teaching. And I'm emphasizing these because I want to make a point about us, ourselves. What's, our, our, what's implied here? It was based on honesty. Kind of like the same one on, on the top about error being of truth. But frankly, I think about it, it being more about being transparent, revealing the word as it is and letting the word have its effect on a human heart. Paul wasn't the one persuading them to believe in him. He wasn't saying, you should do what I do because it's what I do. Never said that anywhere. I mean, you might be thinking, he said, be imitators of me. As, but what did he say after that? As I am of Christ. In other words, be imitators of Christ. You shouldn't want to be in this, that I'm, this thing I'm teaching you. You shouldn't want to respond to the gospel just because I have. At some point, our children... Um, need to be able to respond to the gospel based on what they believe, not on what 
you and I as parents believe. This is, so I want to hit the way we teach people here just a little bit. John? People asking them, why are you doing this? And, and so they're suffering. They're going through this persecution. Think of, what, think of what Jesus said about counting the cost of becoming a Christian. Sometimes that your enemies would be the pe- members of your own household. Do you think these people's families in Thessalonica were saying to these people in Thessalonica, what are you doing? Adam. I think when I think about this deceit based on fooling, I would also liken that in our, how we share the gospel of making certain that we don't try to become salesmen. Mm-hmm. We aren't we aren't selling God's love. Um, and so sometimes when we when we talk about how we share the gospel that we we talk we we use language that people use when they are trained in sales. Well how are we going to overcome this objection? How are we going to get them to this point? And I, I think there can be some parts of that that, that are okay, but but what I, what I would focus on is, in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. But what I think is so interesting in that is, he was there for three Sabbaths, and in that time, he became affectionately desirous, and they became very dear to him. And they shared themselves. And that's, that's what moved the gospel through. And, I mean, technically, if you think about it, that means that he became affectionately desirous of them, or was affectionately desirous, essentially upon sight. Because he didn't have time to have some dwelling and growing love to build. Within days, he wanted to share the gospel with them. And then he did, and he shared themselves. That's what, that's what was the gospel in their teaching. It wasn't, it wasn't a game of let me, let me sell you heaven or let me sell you something better than what you have. And you're, so I'm smiling and chuckling because of what's coming up in my own notes and Adam's ahead of me a little bit as, you, as usual. No, you're smarter than I am. But I, uh, I, I will say this, let me, because uh, I'm gonna get there next. Two things you said are seg- good segues. Why would this be important to, to Paul that they, now John hit on some of it, um, actually maybe the crux of what I'm looking for in my own mind. If I'm not going to base this on something that's made up, some falsehood or some false doctrine or something that's just not aligns with what God has taught us, what we can find in the scriptures when we actually do search the scriptures. If I haven't had any other motive for doing this, I don't want you to come to this church for your money. I don't want you to come and be a member of, of God's family. 
uh, for some other reason. I just want you to have a relationship with God. That's the only thing I'm concerned about and the only thing I'm focused on here. And I'm not uh, trying to trick you into doing something that later you're going to wake up and go, what was I thinking? Like your family might be saying to you already. Why would those things be important? I think John hit on it. My response to that is because he wanted something for these people to have a, that would be long-lasting. This is eternal. This is a relationship with God that will never end. He writes to the Romans in chapter, well, he writes to the Romans about all the things that will never separate us from the love of God. And that's what Paul wants for these people. He wants them to have a genuine relationship with God. He wants it to be a long-lasting relationship with God. He doesn't want them to wake up a year from now, six months from now, ten years from now and go, what was I thinking when Paul came through town and was this slick salesman that sold me this bill of goods? I've ruined my life. For what? Think about some of the other letters. See, we have the benefit of other things Paul has written. Think of some of the things he said to the, to the, to the Corinthians. If, we don't, if this is not true, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then we are above all people in the world to be the most pitied because we have hung our hat. We are living our lives being persecuted. For what? So Paul wanted people to get it, not because... He, it was what he said they should do, not because it was based on some false story, false doctrine, false hope, for some other motive, for money, for, for, for popularity, or for some trickery, some scheme. Paul just said, I just want you to have what I have. And God's offering it to you, to all of you. So here's my question. Is that the way we approach people when we talk to them about our faith? Do we have a genuine motive? Is it impure? Don't try any gimmicks. I'm not looking for answers there. They're all rhetorical questions, but when we think about what we're trying to do with, God, with, with people, I think that the end result for me, I want people to have a long-lasting, I want my children to have a long-lasting relationship with God that eventually ends up with them being uh, rewarded with eternity in heaven. I want that for anybody. I want that for everybody. So how are they going to see it? And it's going to get to what Adam was talking about. They're going to they're be motivated to move toward that because of the way that Paul felt about these people. Do the people that you're teaching, do they see your genuine and sincere feelings for their welfare? I don't know if we're all, you know, if we open up and we're that kind of transparent. But anyway, enough on this. We've got to move on. Who, I, Wayne... Like us, we live in a Gentile society, and this was not a Jewish city. No. This was a Gentile city. To think that there wasn't pressure coming from that side on those people that weren't Jews. The, the Jewish people that were punishing people, really, I don't know if they were punishing the people that were, that were Gentiles not circumcised mm -hmm. as much. But you think back in Ephesus, the row there was not from the Jews. It right. was from the idol worshippers. Right. This was a place like our societies. We see skeptical people because they see things done in the name of religion that are tricky. Mm -hmm. 
They just want your money. So we have, don't we have to deal a little bit with that skepticism? We do. It's a stigma that we have to be able to overcome with our genuineness. With our, with our, we have to expose ourselves. I, I do get a hang of myself, but I do think that's what he meant when he said, I sh- we share our li- very lives with you. There's something in the what they did in the short time they were there that these people could see that Paul could point to and say, you saw, you saw how we were. So before we get there, let's talk about this. This is where we ended last week, and here we are again, 20 minutes in. So uh, anyway, flattering speech. Um, I put all the versions up there that I commonly read um, and how they, what words they use in that same phrase. The New American Standard is there to the left in green highlight. For we never, come, we, we never came with flattering speech. There's the way it says it in the other words. What's Paul saying there? That's the only place, I told you last week at the end of class, it's the only place in the whole Bible where this word is used. This is not the same as what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says, I didn't come to you with persuasive speech. That's different. This is flattering speech. Think about the word flattery and what it means. Cheryl? I was just thinking that it means it's not what they want to hear, it's what they need to hear. Mm, really good. Really good. That was nail on the head right there. Anybody else have anything? Adam? I think, I think this goes hand in hand with that the concept of greed here. We did not, we didn't come to you with greed, with pretext, with uh, seeking financial honor in any way. Instead, we didn't, with that, we didn't lace our words with some flattery whose goal was to just make you feel warm and good. Yeah, and that's it. What does flattery do? What's the definition of flattery? Excessive, false, insincere praise. Why would someone who's trying to sell something to anybody use flattery? Why would they, why would they say things that people want to hear, to Cheryl's point, right? How would this look in the, in the presentation of the gospel? How would you use flattery in the presentation of the gospel? Here's where I think that ties in some other scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, he says, preach, he says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready to do it, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, correct, comfort, and encourage with patience and instruction. There will come a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. They will collect teachers who say what they want to hear because they are self-centered They'll turn their back on the truth and turn to myths. What Paul's saying here about not using flattery is we didn't hold back on saying what your true condition was or is without Christ. You were sinners, you were lost, you were damned. You were to be judged. You were going to experience the wrath of the eternal Father, the creator of all things. Now, did he say it that way? No. I'm sure that because, why do I know that? Because earlier in the chapter, he says, we were gentle with you. Like a nursing mother is, cares for her own children. As a father cares for his children. So how would they bring these things up? They would bring them up in a gentle, loving, as Paul writes in the book of Ephesians to to the Ephesians, in a loving way, to speak the truth in love. Not in a critical, devastating, damaging way, cruel way. But people need to know 
their condition. And Paul says when we don't do that, that's flattery. We're covering up what they need to find out. And if we're doing that to ourselves, we're fooling ourselves. If we think we're better off than we are, when we look in the mirror. I just found this a fascinating concept when I hit it and studied it. I'm a weird, kind of a word nerd. You haven't figured that out. Anyway, it, this, uh, this one stood out to me. Any other comments about that? In light of that comment, and Cheryl, you almost nailed it right on the head. Yeah. So it was their souls that they're really, they're worried about that more than they are the body. And that's the next question. So you all are thinking the same train of thought, which is, of course, following just the scripture itself. He says, and our next question was, um, what do you think, what do you, how do you react to this when he says we are delighted? Uh, we were not, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Adam started to hit on it. They weren't there that very long. So here's some questions I would ask, your, to ask yourself. How long does it take to form a friendship? Kids can do it in a playground in about five seconds. They'll find a friend in a sandbox in a hurry. But for adults, some of us may be a little more guarded. How long does it take to form a friendship? Can we do it at first sight? We hear about love at first sight. How long does it, how much time does it take before you can have a conversation with somebody and spend a little time with somebody and come away with it saying, you know, we sure have a lot in common. And the bond begins. Paul was working day and night with these people. I won't say with all these people, but with some of these people. He was teaching day a night. So I guarantee you he was awake, he was teaching. When he says that we were willing to even give our own lives, they saw Paul living and they saw his dedication, they saw his hard work physically to support himself, and they heard him tell stories. And they talked. I imagine about growing up, about his life as a Jew and a Pharisee and how he was changed. And he heard their stories. And although we say they, he was only there for three Sabbaths and maybe longer if he got there at the right time and left at a time after, can you form that kind of a bond in a month? If you, and what's it take to do it if you say yes? Time. They spent time together. Very in the net. And that's the absolute key. Teaching something. Teaching the gospel. And the reason we don't do a very good job of it usually is because we don't understand. You can't just throw a pile of burst grenades at somebody and yeah. somehow come to come across. You have to share your life. Right. And it takes a tremendous amount of time to, uh, to do that. I mean, it, it just at the beginning, as you said, just to get that bond, but then to go from there. And as you share the gospel, you really, it's really about you tying your life to their right. life. So if you didn't hear that, Barry said, you know, we can throw a bunch of verse bombs out there, but unless they, we spend time with them, it's just 
an exercise in knowledge. Uh, it doesn't touch the heart. I'm get, I have a quote up here I'm going to share in a minute. Adam, I said Adam first. Let me go to Adam. So, so you posed a question in that, which is, how long does it take us to form a friendship? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think maybe sometimes in this context, we, we might proceed in a way that sometimes we can look at friendship as something for me. I'm formulating a friendship with Alan or Chad or Chad or Chip or Barry or whoever because I need someone to love and support me and help care for me. What I can get out of it. And because of that, sometimes I have to be judicious about who I pick because I'm, not everyone wants to invest in me, right? So, so I'm filtering out my relationships for folks who I quote, quote, become friends or close friends with. And I think in this context, though, we have to be careful in applying that idea of, hey, I need someone who's going to love and support my life and be a, a major structural part of, of my world, as opposed to how do I show someone love and care yeah. and invest in them so that I can be that for them. And, and, and so I think sometimes it takes so long because we're, we're filtering on our side. Yeah. As opposed to pouring in for someone else's side. Yeah. And if we're doing that, this relationship can grow much faster when I'm not filtering this for, is this guy gonna be my best friend for life? <laughs> As opposed to, I want to, I'm affectionately desirous of their well-being and a relationship with them. Perfect. And although I wasn't gonna bring this up, it's just the beauty of the scriptures. Why does Jesus use the parable of the Good Samaritan? What principle is he trying to teach when he talks about the Good Samaritan? Was he trying to show how evil the Levites and the Pharisees were because they didn't help the Samaritan? And how random, how great the the Samaritan was who stopped? Is that the point of his? It's not the point of his parable, by the way. (laughs) Just give it away. That's not the point of that parable. That parable that Jesus is talking to you there, he's, who, what's the question he asks at the end of the parable to the audience? He says, who proved to be neighborly? Who proved to be the neighbor? When he says, love your neighbor. Man, that's what started the whole conversation. Love your neighbor. And the person says, well, who's my neighbor? The person's question was, who is my neighbor? Who deserves my attention? Who's going to be a part of my life that I can have something in return for that? Who's my neighbor? And he tells this whole story and he ends the question, his question at the end. So who proved to be the neighbor? It was the Samaritan who poured himself out. Who gave himself some sacrifice to help this man deliver him to a place where he could be taken care of. Put funds aside so that he would be taken care of. And Jesus' point is that's what it means to be a neighbor. I would just loosely say that's what he's ta- Paul's talking about here. This is what it means to be a friend. And we sometimes waste a lot of time thinking about what am I going to get out of this? Cheryl. I was just going to say a, a true friend is somebody that's going to be there during good times and bad times. Mm. If you see, if, if, if you, and you know that, that Every, all of us have our faults. You know, if we have a true friend that really cares about us, even though they see our faults, they still care about yes, us. Yes, they do. They still love us. Because they still want the best for us. That's what a true friend is. They see the potential in you. And they're not afraid to tell you, oh, you could be 
so much better. We all need that. I know we hate it. We all need it. Are you raising your hand? <laughs> well, I just think about our, uh, the, the evangelism we do in churches now, and, and we, we have a page, a website, and we have all of this, and we're proud that we have all these hits and likes, <laughs> and, and that we pat ourselves on the back on what such a wonderful job we're doing, and, and we're really not accomplishing a whole lot because we're really not investing ourselves. Yeah into anybody's lives. And that, that is a huge, it, it makes us lazy. And we think we're doing so, such a great job. And this is the work of it. Yeah, it is. And, and boy, you and I both hit on word investing. Also, I'll give a pitch here. So this year's theme in the quarterly group studies that we have um, is about um, Love in a church. What does it look like when we have love in a church? And the very first quarter's lesson is about how does it look when we're investing in others? So this topic is going to come up again in our March study uh, on a quarterly basis, but I just think it's so important. All these are such valid points. Paul's making the point that this is what matters. He wanted the best for these people, eternal best for these people. And, he, and it was in spite of what? There was going to be some really hard physical ramifications for them for taking this path. Here's what I wanted to show. This, um, this, this little quote here. Many have. I got this from somebody else and I couldn't find the author but I had it written down in a note that, and I, shouldn't have, I should have written down who I got it from but this is not me. This is somebody else but I love what it says. Many have the ability to communicate the gospel to others to speak the words but not as many have the ability to connect with others to touch people's lives. And that's what Paul's saying it takes. I think that's what Jesus was doing. I think that's what every great teacher that you've ever known does. And the examples we have in the scriptures. Jacob. Flattery can build someone up, elevate someone. And then he follows that up by saying, I didn't demand glory from you. And I, maybe I could have because I was an apostle. So I'm not trying to build you up and I'm not trying to build me up. What I'm trying to do is to fulfill the will of God. And that's what he talks about, you know, really the rest of this letter, but what is the will of God? Well, the will of God is for us to be all of us to be sanctified and praise His glory. He's working in us to do that. So there seems to be, if you get the hierarchy right, there's God, there's Jesus, and we're all in the same boat. Mm -hmm. They're there, we're here. Mm -hmm. And I'm no better than you and likewise. And I think that if you meet people there, it's a whole lot easier to be friends with somebody. It's a whole lot easier for somebody to listen to you if you're not puffing you or them up and just saying, look, I'm a sinner too. I'm yeah. just trying to figure out. I don't have all the answers. Um, so it just seems to be a, a general nature, a mindset that he's talking about here. I agree. And I think this, you know, it's just the scriptures are so rich with this kind of um, um, uh, teaching, if you will, principles that we learn. And we can just read right through First Thessalonians and not pick up on some of these that I just think are so valuable for us to remind ourselves what we're doing. When God 
put mankind on the earth and you and you've if you're a believer and you've accepted this gift that he's offered and you said I want to be a Christian and you've been baptized into Jesus and his blood and you're part of his kingdom why are you still here if all God wants is that for you to be with him in heaven why wouldn't he just take you right then if that's all he wants so we're here for way more <laughs> we're going to spend the rest of our lives the majority of our lives depending on when we became a Christian but at least the rest of our lives whenever, whenever it happened doing something and this is it. How do we draw people to God? And it takes all these, these kinds of efforts and sacrifices. I see Kaylee. Stark contrast between like Paul as like a visiting preacher versus like how we might treat like a visiting preacher today or like someone that's coming for a gospel meeting. Yeah. Like we will just say, hey, come hear this guy talk instead of like like finding an opportunity to like actually connect on a one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. basis with the people that need a connection. I agree. That's what people are looking for, by the way. People want to belong to something. The people who are, the people who you cannot believe why they would make the choices that they make in their lives today to go do something that's extremely worldly, why do they do it? Because whoever they're doing it with has accepted them and they feel a sense of belonging. These are my people. We might look at that and say, really? And it, but it's because people are starving to have a sense of belonging, to be a part of something, and a people who get them and understand them, love them, and looks out for the best for them, checks on them when they haven't seen them. I just don't know. As Christians, we should be the best at it. Now, I get it that not everybody's looking for what we're offering. <laughs> we're offering what God has offered all of mankind and not everybody has the same desire to have that sense of belonging but it's our job to at least present it to them and let their hearts be touched or not. Julie? Um, a good example of connecting with someone is what Pastor Crystal has worked with Greta Potts. Sure. Um, you know, Greta may never respond but to the gospel but she knows that mm -hmm. Crystal has given herself mm -hmm. and, and has that love for her. And it happens, that's one example. I can tell you of at least two more that I'm aware of that go, are going on that you would not know that are going on. That investments are being made by individuals in someone else's life to see if we can help them first. And usually they can't understand, I can tell you in all three cases that I'm thinking of, that people think, why would you do this? Why would you offer that? I mean, why would you want to help me? Because that's just not the way they've been, that's not the, what the world teaches them. If someone's trying to help you, mm, there must be some ulterior motive there. Be careful. They've got pretext. They've got pretext. That's right. So we've got to get over that, to Wayne's point. That's part of the stuff we have to get over. All right, moving on. Um, I had this question up here about three different words, holy, righteous, and blameless. Uh, you uh, are witnesses, uh, and so is God, of how devoutly, or holy is the word there, or rightly or righteous or blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. What's Paul saying here about these three words? Whoops. I just gave away the first answer, so now I'm just going to give you the right. And Jacob was sort of hitting on it. This is a good segue. Like the other section where we talked about error and impurity and deceit, here's another th a, tr a triunion, if you will. 
Paul's going to say, as it relates to how we behave toward you, that look, at the, look at the end of that sentence, how we behave toward you. We behaved toward you. Our behavior when we were with you, the things that we did when we were with you, all the stuff we did when we spent time together, whether we were working together, talking about God together, eating together, whatever we were doing, all of that time, Paul could say, you know, you're a witnesses, and so is God, how holy our behavior was toward you. Holy is always talking about who? Who's the only holy? Who is the only one that's holy? God. I'll get into this. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but later in this letter, he talks about being sanctified. It's what makes us holy. Because we don't. We don't on our own. God is holy on his own. On his merit. Because of who he is. But Paul says, our behavior toward you was holy. Meaning it was set apart. It was Godward. It was above reproach. And you know and God knows. Secondly, it was righteous. Jacob said it. We're all in this together. Our behavior toward you was righteous with respect to the way we behaved toward you. We behaved correctly toward you. And lastly, he says blameless. Blameless is the only thing that's left with respect to their own consciences. Paul said he was blameless, remember? Does that mean that someone outside of him said, really? The way that Paul behaved when he, before he was a Christian, he can say he was blameless? All Paul is saying there is in my conscience based on what I know and what I knew at the time, I adhered, I followed my conscience. A whole other topic, but when you say, well, how can that be? Because that can't be an excuse. You can't say, well, God, you need to let me into heaven because I was true to my conscience. My, my conscience told me murder was okay. If somebody had what I wanted. I'm blameless in my conscience. And I would tell you that what needs to be educated are people's consciences. That's why we study the scriptures. That's why we find out what God's character is like. And that's why we're trying to be imitators of God. The more we find out about him, the more our conscience is educated and the more we realize how far different we are from him. And our consciences should be bothered by that to cause us to change. Just, I want to emphasize this just because I think it's important for us also to think about as we're teaching other people or, or engaging with other people or just forming friendships with other people. Keep these in mind. Be right toward God. Be right toward the people you're, you're with and in your conscience. Be true to your conscience. Hopefully that's being educated. I'm going to finish this section here. In Romans 1 verse 18 says the wrath, here's, here's a demonstration of the godliness, ungodliness and unrighteousness. It says in Romans 1.18 when he gets to the end of that section in chapter 1 of Romans about the Gentiles and how that they knew not God. And he says this, he makes this statement, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This picks up into what we're going to study next, this suppressing the truth. But ungodliness and unrighteousness there is talking about if you're behaving in a way that's not right toward God and you're behaving in a way or behaving in a way that's not right toward other people, the wrath of God, you, you will suffer his judgment. John? And 
there's an aspect of this that's subtle. He's not just saying this for his own sake. He's, again, telling them, you evaluate what we did yes. and how we acted so that you can be confident that all this other stuff that we're talking about and the suffering you're going through is an accurate truth. So you need to filter what our actions were through this. And the, the Joel Olsteins of the world don't ask people to evaluate how they acted <laughs> in the past. They want you to listen to what they're saying right now. Yeah. This is, look at what we did, look at how we acted. Trust, or not trust us because we're saying to you, trust us because you can evaluate everything we've done. And, and it passes the limits test. And so all this is talked about, just to conclude and give you this teaser, all this chapter, this part of the chapter has been talking about some behavior, really, and the basis of Paul's relationships with the people, his motives, what he was trying to do, and we can learn a lot from that. But he ends this little section, if you look down there in the next verse, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. Walking worthy of God. We're going to talk about that next week. What does that mean? That's where we'll start, because I do think that's such an important topic for us to, to end on in this section. And we'll finish chapter 2. We'll get into chapter 3. Chapter 3, we'll, I think, we'll cover quickly. Um, won't go into as much depth there, but uh, that'll be my goal. Thank you for your comments this morning.